Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Дальше, чтобы тишина была, спокойствие, чтобы дитина выросла в мире. На сирена, сирена завыла. Да, уже... ну уже все дергаются. Сердце тёпкое. For many people, this fight is a fight between good and evil. So right now Ukrainians are fighting not because they are afraid they are Ukrainians but many people see that this is the only right thing to do in their lives the way how Ukrainians behave it reveals the best qualities of the human nature it's about the protecting the the, the very nature of man probably seen the videos. Handheld camera, wobbly image, mud-filled trench, soldiers in dull khaki, a dusting of snow and the rattle of gunfire. Towns, if there are any, in ruins. Roofs cratered, windows are empty spaces. We're culturally conditioned to think World War I or Stalingrad. But the trenches aren't deep enough. The tones are not sepia, the uniforms are greener, and sometimes the weapons are newer. It is now more than a year since Vladimir Putin's terrible, disastrous decision to mount a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Last year, we tried to bring a new perspective on the war as it unfolded with episodes on the geopolitics, the military strategies, the economic impacts. But now it's time to look back to try to make sense of the conflict, maybe even attempt the first draft of its history. The knowledge that there is a war being fought here in Europe, in trenches, men charging machine gun posts as artillery rounds fly overhead. This may be the most obvious thing in the world, but it is still somehow unbelievable. Yet, believe it, we must. Мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции и приведет вас к таким последствиям, с которыми вы в своей истории еще никогда не сталкивались. A year ago, Vladimir Putin decided to show that he was no longer bluffing, that he was deadly serious when he said that Ukraine was not a real country, when he said that NATO and EU expansion had gone too far. His war was meant to take a few days. The decadent, corrupt Ukrainian leadership would flee to the West or be captured and executed. The decadent, corrupt West would wave their arms around and complain whilst doing essentially nothing. And Putin would be a totemic figure in Russian history, on a par with Peter the Great and Joseph Stalin, uniting Russia and Ukraine in glorious victory. A year later, how different things must look from the end of Putin's enormous table. Perhaps 200,000 Russian soldiers dead and injured, more than in every war they've fought since 1945. Probably 100,000 Ukrainian civilian and military casualties. Russia's reputation for military prowess in tatters, increasingly reliant on conscripts and convict mercenaries. Ukraine is now a byword for heroism, resilience and ingenuity. Russia is more isolated than it has ever been. How does Putin feel when he thinks of this first year of his war? Imagine him, 
Alone in the labyrinthine Kremlin, the bell tolling in the tower of Ivan the Great. Does he send to ask for whom the bell tolls? Well, Vladimir Vladimirovich, it tolls for thee. I'm Arthur Snell. This is Doomsday Watch, the Ukraine war. Bakhmut and Solidar, when you arrive there, you realize that this is a, this is like a clash of two eras. You have what looks initially like First World War, you know, the mud, there's trenches. It looks like something from 1918. But then you have tied in with this, you have this, you know, high-tech weapons that are vastly more powerful. Paul Conroy is one of Britain's leading war zone cameramen. He's a veteran of Russia's onslaught in Syria, where he reported alongside the late Marie Colvin. More recently, he's been training journalists reporting from the front lines near Bakhmut, where Russia continues its brutal struggle over that small town in the Donbass. It's astonishing because it's quite beautiful countryside. There's these rolling hills, and then there's just this constant roar of artillery landing. At some point, Zelensky said they are just coming over in waves, and that was borne out. With everyone I speak to, you look out over these battlefields and you can see the bodies piled up. And as you described it, these human waves, these are just like those World War One movies where the you know the lieutenant blows the whistle and they go over the top and charge towards machine machine guns. I mean, is that basically what's happening? That is exactly what's happening, Arthur. So you have the Ukrainian lines, then you have what is actually you know an old-fashioned kind of no man's land, and it's it's quite phenomenal. Um, because they, 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 the Ukrainians fly a lot of drones. So when you sit with these guys and you can now look at this battlefield almost in real time and, and you do see these waves of people. And, and apparently the Wagner group, uh, the, the Wagner mercenaries, were not shy. Apparently it was easier to get these guys to go over the top because a lot of them were dropped from prisons and um, in Russia. You know, you fight for six months, you get paid, and you get, if you, if you make it past six months, you get to go free. So. They were getting these mercenaries to, to do literally the, the waves of humans. And the Ukrainians I spoke to said they would just machine gun them down and think, why don't they run back? And before they knew it, the next wave would come over. And, and, and that's not something I've ever seen. But when you actually look at this place, you know, if you could see it in black and white, you wouldn't be too far, you know, from Verdun or Passchendaele. It was deep deep mud, wet, such cruel conditions to be to be fighting in. You know, the costs are vast on both sides. Um, there's, there's no getting away from that. There's, you know, there's no real winners when it comes to the people on the ground. My name is George, and I was, I'm, I'm a member of Georgian National Legion. Uh, yes, I've been here, I've been living in, in the United Kingdom for 13 years now. And as for the war, yeah, being born and then growing up in Georgia, I have experienced, witnessed and experienced uh, about five wars, all being provoked by Russia or raged against us by Russia. So when this war this invasion started, uh, and I I saw in news, and then all the videos started started coming. Seeing this all, and also see uh, having this past experiences from Georgia, I felt so much guilt for every second of not being there 
while I just stayed uh, at home, nice and comfortable and everything was fine. But it, this nice life just didn't come like that from out of nowhere. It, it, it has been bought and brought to us with sweat and blood. And I made a step and in the early April, I was already in Ukraine. So you said you, you were sent to the front. Uh, where were you sent? Uh, what happened? So um, on the, the last two months, we were sent to Bakhmut. And uh, that's the, the most hot, hottest place. And in Bakhmut, you would hear about five explosions a minute. And that was just a kind of ongoing, normal thing. And then you had also helicopters and airplanes coming in. It was very hot, actually, really active, very active zone. I remember this because we would go and then spend three, four, five days in the city on the operation, come out, have a rest for a day or two, then go back again for a few days. There was one night and we were on, a, on the operation, on mission, and uh, it was minus 22. And plus, what made it worse, it was really windy and you could feel this minus 22 in your bones and everywhere. And so another challenge became the survival. And you're, uh, when you were in Bakhmut, you, you were effectively defending the city from a Russian onslaught. We hear a lot about the, the Russian tactics of, of using basically untrained, you know, maybe convicts or other criminals and so on. Did you, did you see that with your own eyes? Absolutely. Uh, seriously, on a couple of operations, I did see that like as a fire witness that because the way they come and uh, once we saw this rotation happening in, uh, in Russian lines, so it means the new groups uh, keep coming. So for a reason, they don't have radio connection uh, between each other. So if you hit the first unit, first group that is approaching the coming, they are unable to spread fear or panic or pass information that, hey, we're hit, so be aware. No, the, uh, the coming unit has no idea what they're going to, what they're, what they're going towards. And then you just kind of... Uh, damage or even sometimes destroy the unit. You call artillery on them or something. You see the people's body parts flying on the limbs flying. And the coming people, this youth, so sad, these 18, 20, 22, 23 year old boys have absolutely no idea where they're going. Believing that yeah, the, the front unit just made it to the trench. So we gotta go there. No, you're not gonna reach there because I mean, you've been sent just to, and it's another wave. You're not even number. You just disappear, and that's it. Nobody cares. You're just gone. Uh, there's so many dreams, so many human lives, and so many the, the parents, the aims that their son or daughter must kind of grow up and have a career, and it's all gone within seconds. And for what? For this kind of pack of lies. It's really sad, and also. In Legion, you don't see this. We don't operate with hatred. We operate with love because we love justice. We love freedom. We love uh, what's right. We love values, human life. And the only reason why we had to uh, stop and prevent this aggression, this evil darkness, is because of love. And they, they, they touched something that you love very much. And they, they came and burning down and destroying and raping and beheading what you love. And then you, the only chance to stop that was to take arms and then do something about it. But uh, I mean, from from their side, uh, I feel a lot of hatred and a lot of anger and a lot of. Uh, so that's the that's the main difference actually between us. It's love and hatred. It's light and darkness. Why Bakhmut? It has no real strategic value. This is no Stalingrad. It's just a small, archetypal post-Soviet town that few people had ever heard of until recently. Bakhmut is a way into a very old story. Putin likes history, or at least he likes to rewrite it, as we saw in July 2021 with his lengthy essay, which he entitled On the Historic Unity of Russians and Ukrainians, this being a unity in which Ukraine ceases to exist. In this essay, 
Putin describes ancient Rus and acknowledges that Kiev was the mother of all Russian cities in the 9th century, Putin's emphasis here being on the Russian. So what was Kievan Rus? Let's not forget, we're talking about the 9th century, so there's not a huge amount of historical evidence to go on. But what we know is that Vikings established a settlement in Kiev under Prince Oleg around the year 880. And these people were known as the Rus, eventually giving their name to Russia. But the name Rus actually comes from the Finnish word for Sweden, Ruotsi, and refers to the Viking origins of these earlier settlers. And it's worth noting that at this time, Moscow and Russia simply didn't exist. So Kievan Rus is a Viking settlement in what is now Ukraine, which eventually gave its name to the Russian people. Around this same time, Vikings were settling in England, Ireland, France, Germany, even Greenland, North America. So the Viking foundation of Kiev and Novgorod, which is uncontestedly in Russia, really tells us nothing at all about Moscow's claims on Ukraine. Jade McGlynn is an expert on Russian history and author of the book Russia's War, published in March 2023. This is really, I suppose, the birthplace, not only of Russian, but of East Slavic identity in the sense that it was Prince Volodymyr in Ukrainian or Prince Vladimir in Russian who baptised Rus, um, who brought the Eastern Slavs over to Christianity. And I mean, there's a lot of histo historiographical dispute. In a way, what's interesting here isn't actually so much the history, but why it matters. And why it matters is because it's about legacy. It's about creating this sense of almost historical essentialism. So Putin is not somebody who believes that, that nations are constructed. He believes that nations, they kind of just exist. I mean, I started studying this in, in 2014. I think it really started in earnest, this kind of, I call it like a call to history, this this sort of obsessive preoccupation with, with rewriting history and making it relevant to today. Um, I think it really started with Putin's return to the presidency in 2012. And then it's always been quite closely linked to Ukraine and, and the annexation of Crimea, it breathed um, a, a lot of life into it. Um, and we see a lot of these references to historic Russia. And I know a lot of people in the West tend to talk about his aims as if he were trying to recreate the Soviet Union. But that's not the case at all. He likes the Soviet Union in so far as he sees it as, as representing another form of historic Russia. But he's not necessarily enamoured of the Soviet Union for many reasons. What I would say is I think there's something especially intense about what's happened in Russia around history. And I think that's linked to the fact that so recently there was a, a collapse and, and people then had to kind of rewrite history to create this new future. As with all very long histories, you can find almost anything you want buried in the centuries of records. And that's where Bakhmut comes in. It's a strange name, and I found myself wondering whether there was any link between the word Bakhmut and the Arabic word Bakhmat, meaning a beast. But why should there be? A small town in Ukraine, thousands of miles from the Middle East. And then someone drew my attention to the fact that the town gets its name from a Turkic word for a horse, Bakhmat, which is derived from the same Arabic word. So why does any of this matter? Because this tells us that at one point, long after Kievan Rus, Bakhmut was part of the Crimean Khanate, a Tatar state. The Tatars were an indigenous population of Crimea and large parts of what is now the Donbass, until Stalin carried out a genocide and forced deportations in the mid-20th century. So, is Ukraine historically Swedish, Russian, Tatar? Maybe it's just Ukrainian. Whatever you think, Bakhmut is a reminder that if you want to play the history card, history doesn't always support your argument. The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Rishi Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. 
We are proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. One thing we need to get out of the way is the idea that 2023 is the first anniversary of Russia's war against Ukraine. It's the anniversary of the operation they began in 2022, but Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. To be honest, unlike today, many people across the world will have known very little about Ukraine back then. So where should we start? What is this nation which Putin seeks to destroy? Petro Berkovsky, executive director of Ukraine's Ilka Kurkiv Democratic Initiative Foundation, takes us back to the founding of the modern Ukrainian nation in the post-Soviet landscape of 1991. On the eve of the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Ukrainian society, it was a type of Soviet society, meaning that uh, the uh, only ideology allowed was the ideology of uh, Soviet communism. Uh, The Russian language was used as a tool of integration uh, within the Soviet Union. And to speak Russian in Ukraine in the late Soviet times uh, meant that you are an intelligent, educated person, while using the Ukrainian language uh, would mean that you are a redneck, right? The idea of Russian superiority was imposed on the people. Everything was right with this narrative up until the moment when Soviet control, the party control, the communist control uh, weakened and people started to question the uh, wisdom and the legitimacy of the communist party, uh, the deficit uh, of the basic food, and uh, also the truth about Stalin's crimes emerged and people started to rediscover their true identities. So the process of uh, nation building, which started in the early uh, 90s, overlapped with the process of getting rid of the remnants of the Soviet institutions and building a new uh, democratic institutions. Uh, Then, when Putin came to power, he again started to use all of these uh, historical narratives that Soviet Union was great, that its collapse was a result of the Western conspiracy and uh, that democracy was uh, a fake and a false concept imposed on Russia by the West in order to keep Russia under control. And for Ukrainians, uh, it appeared that uh, everything that Putin was saying about this, that it contradicted the historical facts. It became more and more evident to more and more people that the Kremlin is just lying that it's using its influence and try to use these lies to divide the Ukrainian nations into two camps. The climax of these attempts, it was the year of 2014, when the Kremlin tried to provoke a civil war in Ukraine. So uh, it's a great disillusionment. This disillusionment, it came at a huge human price. Petro is talking about Ukraine's revolution of dignity and Putin's invasion of 2014. The year before that, Ukraine, under its pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych, was in advanced negotiations with the European Union over an agreement that would effectively give Ukraine preferential access to the EU's single market. This had taken decades to negotiate and was ready for signature at the end of November at a summit with EU leaders in Vilnius. But Russia was playing its own game, threatening devastating trade sanctions on Ukraine if it signed the EU deal. So Ukraine attended the summit but did not sign. Vlad Mikhnenko at the University of Oxford has devoted much of his career to studying the Russo-Ukrainian conflict and picks up the story. Where shall we go back is a difficult one because obviously Ukraine's political economy and post-communist transition has been a long uh, and long and arduous process. Uh, I think we can go back at least to the 2010 presidential elections. And like 
the kind of conventional wisdom of Viktor Yanukovych winning on a pro-Russian electoral ticket. He actually won on a pro-European electoral ticket. I think that's an important thing to remember because back in 2013, when Ukraine's sort of process of talks with the European Union progressed to the level that an association agreement could be signed. Moscow realized, the Kremlin realized that this is actually prepared and is ready to be signed. Uh, then they got spooked and they offered uh, Yanukovych and his government something in the in the matter of three billion uh, US dollars as a unconditional loan, which Yanukovych took. Uh, in the final moment, effectively flying to to Vilnius, where that association agreement was supposed to be signed. Uh, President Yanukovych refused to sign it, and and that provoked the the, the beginnings of the revolution. Dignity, Euromaidan. With hundreds of thousands of protesters camped out in the Maidan, Yanukovych didn't realize what he'd unleashed, but he plowed on, negotiating a bailout from Russia and a cheap deal with their gas. Compared to the value of access to the EU's markets, this was thin gruel. But Putin knows how to make money talk. $3 billion up front, part of a $15 billion deal. This was signed in December 2013. It was a classic example of how autocrats can make a compelling proposition that a cumbersome democracy like the EU could never match. However, the protesters weren't going anywhere. Their numbers continued to rise and the riot police began to resort to ever more violent tactics. On February the 18th, 2014, snipers began shooting protesters as they continued their vigil in the Maidan. To this day, controversy rages over whether these shootings were the work of Ukrainian forces or Russians brought in by Putin's right-hand man, Vladislav Surkov, who was definitely in Ukraine at the time, attempting to prop up Yanukovych's government. Whatever the answer, the brutality had the reverse effect to what was intended. The Ukrainian parliament was united in its outrage and began articles of impeachment against Yanukovych. Two days later, he had fled to Russia, leaving behind his palaces, complete with a private zoo and a golf course. In the square where all this began, there is tonight quiet reflection about where it is all leading. They fly their flags, man their barricades and light their candles. A country torn between east and west is splitting apart before their eyes. The use of anonymous snipers had all the hallmarks of Putin's Russia, striking fear into the population without any clarity as to who is actually responsible. A world of disinformation and confusion, the grey zone. And this same tactic was being applied in Crimea and the Donbass. Russian-speaking Crimeans, that is to say Ukrainian citizens, were bombarded with propaganda telling them that Ukrainian fascists were about to round them up and murder them. Some Russian-speaking Crimeans took to the streets, setting up roadblocks and trying to seize control of public buildings. But this was largely an organized operation undertaken by the famous Little Green Men, Russian special operations forces that had been infiltrated into Crimea and who acted largely unopposed, but also unavowed by the Russian government. Within a week of Yanukovych's departure, Russian forces had seized all the major administrative buildings in Crimea. It was a stunning development. Russia's ability to change facts on the ground with its irregular forces and willingness to act with ruthless efficiency sent shockwaves around the world. Ukraine, still reeling from the departure of Yanukovych and under an interim government, appeared largely powerless. Russia's ambitions didn't end there. It also sent officers and fighters into the Donbass, where there were pockets of local resistance to Ukrainian rule. Vlad Mikhnenko has studied their actions. The Russian Kremlin narrative has been to use the local grievances that might have existed in Crimea or in the Donbas as a, as a kind of a, an excuse to say that that was a local civil war uh, between the, the regime in Kiev and the local people in, in Crimea and the Donbas. That was carefully manufactured and fairly successful, arguably, in terms of the foreign media exposure. Uh, and of course, foreign journalists who were there could not differentiate it. It's impossible to differentiate between the local population and the activists 
bus from, from Russia proper. Uh, and so it looked on the screen as if there was a, a big group of demonstrators protesting against the uh, the new government in Kiev and protesting for some sort of autonomy. So they, they propel that narrative quite effectively. It's not that the narrative has been so so beautiful. It's just some people in the West who did not want to get involved uh, use that as, a, as an excuse not to get involved themselves. In the research I've been doing on Donbass over many years, the findings that, that we have and the data that we have shows that there were neither sufficient nor necessary conditions in the region itself for a, for a violent uprising locally, domestically based. There were no separatist movements. There were no arms. So what happened in 2014 in Donetsk and Luhansk was, was infiltration of various types of uh, pro-Russian Russian activists. Just 48 hours ago, in this southern city of Mariupol, Ukrainian army and separatist government were fighting long gun battles in control of the city's main police station. Unlike in Crimea, Ukraine surged its military into the Donbass and pushed Russia's forces backwards. It's in this context that Vladimir Putin took a decision that would prove fateful. He decided to supply forces in the Donbass with heavy weapons, including a powerful Buk surface-to-air missile system. A few weeks later, in July 2014, a Buk missile was fired by Russia's forces at a Malaysian civilian airliner, killing 298 people, most of them Dutch citizens. What should have been an obscure conflict for Putin to tie down Ukraine's military had become an international scandal. But even the deaths of 300 civilians with no connection to the conflict whatsoever wasn't enough to get Western countries seriously to change their behaviour. Well, first of all, it's one of the blackest days in the history of this nation, and we are deeply, deeply terrified and horrified by what happened by this crime that all evidence shows was perpetrated by the uh, so-called separatists. We call them terrorists. They have been hunting our planes. Today, they have been bragging all over the internet that, quote unquote, another Ukrainian birdie is down. Understanding Vladimir Putin's decision-making requires us to be realistic about the signals he was getting from Western countries in the years leading up to the invasion. Liana Fix is a historian and political scientist at the Council on Foreign Relations. Both the United States and the European countries who were in the lead in the crisis over Ukraine, as it was called back then, they all agreed that there would be no military solution so weapons to Ukraine, out of a fear to further provoke Russia and to further make this conflict bigger than it already was. But for Putin, the annexation of Crimea really was something where he felt he, he had outfoxed um, the West. So from a European perspective, it seemed reasonable to, as it was called back then, compartmentalize this conflict with Russia because it was still perceived as a regional war, as a war over Ukraine somewhere in Eastern Europe, which does not immediately have something to do with Europe's own security and with with, with, with core Europe. And from a US perspective at that time, um, it was President Obama who tried to put Russia into the box of a regional power. To, to some extent, he underestimated Russia and Russia's capability to become more than just a regional power and a regional threat, but really to have global implications of its actions. One Western politician who felt like excusing Putin was Britain's Boris Johnson, then Foreign Secretary. Indeed, as far as he was concerned, the EU was at fault and it was Russia that had been provoked into acting. Here's what he wrote on the subject in 2016, long after it had become clear that Russia was responsible for the shooting down of MH17. Boris said, The European Union's attempts to reach economic deals with former Soviet states like Ukraine and Georgia has provoked Russia into adopting a more aggressive military stance in areas like Crimea. We know now that Johnson, when he was foreign secretary, remained opposed to supplying Ukraine with lethal aid in spite of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum in which Britain, the USA and Russia all had committed to guarantee Ukraine's territorial integrity. But Britain was hardly alone. Most Western countries were reluctant to give it what it needed to defend itself, 
even though it was now fighting a full ground war in the east against Russia. Stephen Pfeiffer was US ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000 and was in Ukraine in 2014 on behalf of the US government. Now, I was part of a group uh, It involved a couple of other former American ambassadors to Ukraine, Bill Taylor and John Herbst. And uh, we went to Kyiv, but also went to Kramatorsk, which was the field headquarters for Ukrainian military operations. We had six or seven recommendations, all of which, except one of which were non-lethal. But we did, uh, in our conversations in Ukraine, find that one thing the Ukrainians lacked was man-portable anti-armor weapons. We made that recommendation. We had a chance to brief it at senior levels all through Washington. And I think we pretty much persuaded everybody in Washington except for one or two people, and one of those people was Barack Obama. I do believe the Obama administration did provide Ukraine significant financial assistance, economic assistance, loan guarantees. On the question of military support, now at the end of the day, he decided not to provide lethal assistance. I disagree with that decision, but I can understand it was probably a a 60-40 call because about the same time you had Chancellor Merkel come to Washington, she was about to embark with the president of France on this effort to mediate a solution between uh, Putin and then Ukrainian President Poroshenko. And she asked that the Americans not provide lethal military assistance. And my sense is that President Obama decided to defer to her since she was going to be directly engaged in the mediation effort. I think it was a mistake, but I can understand uh, why President Obama came down on the other side. I predict to you that it will be another step in Vladimir Putin's strategy to separate Eastern Ukraine from Ukraine. We would not send weapons to Ukrainians when they were begging for them because we didn't want to, quote, provoke Vladimir Putin. By showing weakness, we provoke Vladimir Putin. We're talking about how Russia ended up taking the tragically flawed decision to invade Ukraine in February 2022. As we heard from Petro Berkovsky, the heart of this story is the ending of the Soviet empire. Vladimir Putin's rise to power was a direct result of the chaos and humiliation of Russia in the 1990s, a decade it had begun as a global superpower, albeit a pretty ramshackle one, and which it ended having lost a war in Chechnya, defaulted on its debt, and humiliated in Kosovo. This doesn't mean that Putin's rise was inevitable, but it is shaped by those events. Professor Vladislav Zubok literally wrote the book on the fall of the Soviet Union, and essential to his argument is the observation that the Union need not have ended as it did. Mistakes made by Gorbachev and in Washington accelerated the collapse. So it it became sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy when he decided to democratize the country, open up the country, create of uh, parliamentary institutions, but that didn't change the conditions of economic deterioration. It made them worse. Economists told him, listen, you must be in charge of these reforms. You must take responsibilities to unify republics by an economic reform, by a market reform. Uh, Gorbachev didn't do it. So he, he decided to devolve responsibility to other republics. While he waited, uh, Boris Yeltsin began to rise in the Russian Federation, basically telling, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it by myself. And of course, it was impossible to do it in one republic, even such big as Russia, without tearing the entire economy apart, because there was yeah. only one economy and only one currency, the ruble. It was yeah. the ultimate single market, I guess. It, absolutely, ultimate single market. It's kind of you know counterintuitive to say that this economy had a single market market, but it had a single market. So uh, Gorbachev had only one chance, I guess. He had to declare uh, privatization and and market reform so that people, uh, they would make money together rather than, you know, tear the country apart in the name of nationalism. Well, nationalism is strong, but profit is also a strong motive. That was his chance. And I think he, he blew it. I want to move on to the story of Ukraine within that moment in history. And of course, Ukraine's decision 
to depart from the Soviet Union was perhaps the moment when the possibility that the Soviet Union would survive uh, came to an end. Perhaps you could talk us through that moment and how some of the seeds of what we see today were planted at, at that time. Right. Even in 1988 and 99, you could observe a, a very, very strong uh, open political movement for secession. It was ironically Gorbachev who pushed Kiev to start a movement uh, later called Ruch, a movement for the support of perestroika. But that movement, joined by Ukrainian intellectuals, immediately became a vehicle for national independence and for national sovereignty because, you know, writers, historians who joined it, they pushed yeah. their narrative. Then uh, all of a sudden Yeltsin comes to Kiev in November 1990 and Yeltsin offers the parliament of Ukraine a, a, an equal treaty said, let's just forget the all previous history that was a history of colonization and imperialism. Yeah. We'll start a new relationship. And that was the beginning of sort of the strange process. The more Russia pushed for independence, that is the Russian Federation, the more it pushed Ukraine to become independent at the same time. I found in, even in 1991, the situation was precarious before August, before the coup in Moscow. Yeah. So following the story, indeed, uh, the coup was a surprising dud. It destroyed all central uh, forces that held the country together, including the, the KGB and the army and the party. And then Ukraine declared an act of independence, and immediately, immediately clashes began. Clashes over Crimea and Donbass. So I was surprised that even in August, September, October, November 1991, the talk was very, very tough. I mean, it didn't come to blows at the time. The army was still the Soviet army. Uh, very many, few people could actually conceive a war between the two Slavic countries, but it was already in words. It was already in this rhetoric. Zubok's argument is partly that, at the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union needed a firm leader if it was going to make the huge reforms necessary to survive. And Gorbachev was not that person. He was naturally driven to seek to find consensus. With America not too worried by the prospect of its old adversary collapsing into chaos, the Soviet Union was falling apart at the seams, with individual Soviet republics from the Baltic to the Black Sea moving firmly towards independence. For Vladimir Putin, the end of the Soviet Union was, in his words, a genuine tragedy. And the final trigger of that tragedy was the departure of Ukraine, a country he doesn't even believe should exist. So you can see how Ukraine's very existence has been bound up with Putin's feelings of resentment and hostility since 1991. But Putin has other obsessions, and one we need to talk about is NATO. Was Russia promised that NATO would not expand eastwards? Did it therefore have a right to be affronted, even feel threatened, when that started to happen? In fact, as Stephen Pfeiffer explains, the muddle of European and US relations with Russia led at the time to a dangerous fudge. Talk of NATO expansion with none of the benefits of concrete security arrangements. It was in 2002 when Ukraine publicly announced its goal of joining NATO. And I believe that was because in Kyiv they saw that, in fact, uh, Vladimir Putin had just agreed with NATO to deepen the NATO-Russia relationship. But what happened then was uh, the United States, we told the Ukrainians, we're prepared to support your desire to join NATO, provided you do your homework. And that's not just military reform, it's building democratic institutions, a market economy, reform of the security services. And uh, President Kuchma, they really didn't do their homework. So you had this situation in 2008 when the Ukrainian government, then led by President Yushchenko, uh, I think was inclined to do their homework. They asked for a membership action plan with NATO. Uh, but then the Russians, who had been relatively quiet about this, came up very strongly and against it. And at the Bucharest summit in NATO, President uh, Bush was not able to achieve consensus on the membership action plan uh, for Ukraine. 
And instead, you got this very weird outcome. And I think this really was uh, Chancellor Merkel. Uh, and she was opposed to giving Ukraine a membership action plan, but wanted to give President Bush a consolation prize. So you had this very strange formulation in the NATO summit communique that said, Ukraine and Georgia will be members of NATO. <laughs> and NATO had really never said that about any other country until really it had checked all the boxes and was all ready to join. And this decision in Bucharest 2008 really was a problem. Here's Liana Fix again. It increased the risk to those countries, to Ukraine and Georgia, because Russia has very clearly said that a NATO expansion to Ukraine and Georgia would be unacceptable for Russia. But it did not provide any additional security guarantees to those countries. So it actually made their situation even more difficult. Full-fledged membership in the EU and NATO, which is secured in the constitution of Ukraine, remains unchanged. This is the priority of our foreign policy. The goal of all our reforms is to improve living standards of Ukrainians, root out corruption and modernize the state. It's possible to accomplish only by providing our national security. We must first be able to protect ourselves. In 2019, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian comedian, was elected president. And he spoke clearly as an outsider in politics on the need for Ukraine to join NATO in a way that his predecessors had been reluctant to. Many alliance members were nervous, but at its 2021 summit, NATO restated the formula that, I quote, Ukraine will become a member of the alliance, without specifying timeframes. For Putin, Zelensky was a problem. Putin had relied on the Ukrainian pro-Russian politician Viktor Medvedchuk as his go-between in Ukraine. But Zelensky wouldn't talk to Medvedchuk, who represented everything that he'd come into politics to change, corrupt, pro-Russian, in Putin's circle. The already strained relationship between Kyiv and Moscow got even worse. Let's talk about Western countries. Why were we content for Russia to continue its escalations, its invasions, its assassinations? Part of this is the phenomenon of countries seeking to use Russia for their own narrow interests. Recall Boris Johnson seeing the whole Euromaidan crisis and the invasion of Crimea as nothing more than an opportunistic argument in the Brexit debate or Germany, deluding itself that it could rely on Russia's gas for its industrial sector without empowering Putin's worst behaviour. Here's Liana Fix. There were sabotage acts, I mean, the murder of Litvinenko, but then later also in Salisbury, the Tiergarten murder in Germany. So there were all these episodes. But after the annexation of Crimea, Russia came away with the impression that beyond political rhetoric and sanctions, it does not have to fear a stronger response from the West. There was still a prevailing narrative that whatever Russia was doing was part of um, a typical Russian way of, of hybrid warfare, combining military means with economic pressure, with using leverage in countries around the world to tip certain situations in its favor. So it was clear that Russia was expanding its, its, its foothold also on a global scale, I think from a European perspective, there was a very long, a very old tradition of hoping for a cooperative security environment with Russia. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. He's a man deeply committed to his country and the best interests of his country. Uh, and I appreciated so very much the frank dialogue. And that's the beginning of a very constructive relationship. Um, I wouldn't have invited him to my ranch if I didn't trust him. Another facet of Western opportunism was America and its allies seeking to recruit Russian help in the war on terror. On the face of it, Russia faced the same threat of Islamist terrorism that had plagued the West. 
and this meant that there were common strategic interests, except that many of the so-called Islamist attacks carried out in Russia, such as the 1999 apartment bombings, were probably false flags perpetrated by Putin's own security services. So we allowed ourselves into a sense of false brotherhood with Russia as the West was consumed with its wars of choice in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mark Galliotti is a leading expert on Russia under Putin. Frankly, the West didn't really want Russia to be a problem. They felt they had many others. And therefore, a leader who looked as if he was competent, looked as if he was going to bring some order back to the country. Remember, those are the days when we were also terrified of loose nukes being sold to terrorists and the like. Um, you know, actually, that, that worked well. He very much presented himself, as you say, as a partner in the global war against terror. But the interesting thing is this. I don't think it was entirely cynical. I mean, a part of, and only a small part, of the clear, genuine bitterness he feels towards the West is his view is that at the beginning he thought, look, I will happily let you do whatever you want as long as you let me do what I want against my enemies. And for example, when the West started raising the appalling human rights record in Chechnya, you know, Putin seems genuinely to have been outraged because he felt that more or less there was an implicit deal. We're each fighting our wars. I won't criticize yours if you don't criticize mine. So I think, yes, that, that there was an element of kind of Western project. There was an element of Western naivety. And there was also an element of Putin's naivety. So when did things really fall apart? What, what do you see as the sort of the most significant turning point in the pathway to that sort of breakdown? I mean, to me, I mean, obviously, there's, there's all kinds of uh, way stations. But if I had to make a point about where I think really it became a sort of absolute no return, I think it was 2011, 2012, and the so-called Balotnaya protests in Moscow. And the point is that for Putin, it's clear that these were not, in his view, organic protests. These were not natural. These were something that was generated. And there's all kinds of nonsense. And, and I'm mean, coming ever since June, I have been barred from Russia. But, you know, I used to travel back and forth a lot and talk to people. And the thing that struck me was, you know, when you're talking to the people who are, as it were, shall I say, in the Putinist camp, the degree to which there was this bizarre, almost surreal moral certainty that ultimately these protesters had been stirred up, quite possibly unknowingly, but nonetheless stirred up, mobilized and directed by the CIA and indeed MI6. We still have a, have a place in the, in, in the Russian villain's cosmology. You know, it's really striking. And I think the, from the point of view of Putin, he'd seen all these, you know, the, the Arab Spring, the revolutions in former Soviet states, and regarded them as being something that was sort of created by the West, by the Americans, to bring down regimes they didn't like. And I think for him, Balotnaya was the point where he thought, right, and now they're coming for me. And I think that's really the point where he shifted into what we might think of as war mode. That from his point of view, that was a declaration of war. What's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Nothing about what happened last year is inevitable. Putin's isolation during COVID, his reliance on a small group of intelligence officers telling him what he wanted to hear, increasing paranoia. We'll explore all of these in a future episode. But as this was happening, some Western intelligence agencies began to sound the alarm. In December 2021, detailed American briefings described a Russian invasion plan that was not that far different from the one that finally unfolded. What we know now is that war was approaching. By early December of 2021, 
the U.S. government was, was persuaded that there was going to be a major Russian attack on, on Ukraine. And I remember talking to a, a colleague in the government, and he said, look, I can't share the intelligence with you. But he goes, but I've seen it. It's absolutely bone-chilling. Stephen Pfeiffer again. And what happened in beginning in November and December of 2021 was this process of consultations with NATO, with the European Union, with the G7. And it wasn't just the presidential phone calls, but each day you had dozens of meetings, Zoom sessions, phone calls across the Atlantic to other allies. And I think this was really an example of American diplomacy at its best. Even at this stage, it was still possible that Putin would not go through with the invasion. His threats made him the centre of global attention, with world leaders beating a path to his door and to his vast table to try to talk him down. Putin wanted to be treated as the leader of a superpower, and this was exactly what was happening. Would he be satisfied with Western assurances, another round of brinkmanship giving him what he wanted? Mark Galliotti. The irony is that right up to the point when Putin invaded, he was winning. He'd assembled this huge force along Ukraine's borders. And yet within Russian well, and Belarusian territory, so you know, within the international law, but under the shadow of Russian guns and the threat of constant in potential invasion, investors were flocking out of Ukraine and the Ukrainian economy was in crisis. And at the same time, there was a constant stream of Western VIPs heading to Moscow, putting Putin in exactly that place he likes to be, that of centrality, that people are coming to him on metaphorical bended knee to petition him not to invade Ukraine. We get a sense of Putin's erratic behaviour, his isolation, in these final days at the infamous Security Council meeting held the day before the war. It's clear that even his top security leaders don't know exactly what's on the cards. In a now famous sequence, Sergei Naryshkin, head of the Foreign Intelligence Service and someone you would expect to have a commanding insight, is reduced to spluttering incoherence as Putin bullies him over the fate of the Donbass. The interesting thing about the Security Council meeting is it was an epitome of, let's say, late Putin, how he's become today. First of all, I mean, he clearly enjoyed bullying his underlings. You know, when he was particularly humiliating his intelligence chief, Narishkin, at one point the camera cut to him and you could see the smirk on his face. He was enjoying this. It also, I think, shows the degree to which Putin relies on personal relationships and assumes that individuals are able to, in effect, change the world. I mean, we've seen this also with his you know, tendency to sack generals and such like. You know, rather than addressing systemic issues, he just thinks that if you bully or replace the person at the top, suddenly things will change. And this is not a man, I think, who ultimately understands how, how governments work. And the final thing is, it's clear that his own Security Council didn't know what he planned to do. And they were all trying to either get out of expressing any clear opinion or trying to guess what it is that he wanted. This is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, again, these are the people who should have been involved in any long-term planning for something as major as the invasion of a country with a population one-third of your own. And the question has to be exactly, why do you televise this? Why do you make it into a big example of essentially the theatre of power and dominance? And in part, that's a message to the Russian people. I mean, that, that's an expression of, again, power in a very kind of King Lear-ish sense. At the same time, clearly this is also a message to the outside world, which again is, I am the decider. That you know, despite all the talk about illnesses and so forth, that Putin is there and in charge. In Ukraine, some people were preparing for the worst, but many simply didn't believe that a war was in the offing. Two days before the invasion, President Zelensky himself was saying it wouldn't happen. 
Ukrainian journalist Maria Romanenko was on holiday with her boyfriend, only to return on the eve of what would be the conflict. A lot of people believed that there would be an escalation because otherwise, why would there be 150,000 troops on the border if Russia wasn't planning to do something? But when the US or as anybody was warning us that Russia could uh, invade, we were like, well, but they invaded eight years ago. Um, I think that probably shaped a lot of our feelings just be- before the invasion. I know I and others didn't think that that would be what happened. You know, the, the bombs uh, dropped across the country everywhere, including Kiev, Kiev region and the West. Uh, so we flew back on the 23rd of February to Kiev and probably were one of the last flights to land in Kiev. I think it was just, I mean, going back to that, because I... I yeah, I've tweeted quite a lot um, in February, uh, saying this is what life in Kiev is like right now. So everybody was thinking that Ukrainians should be like scared and not, and the life shouldn't go on. But it's a very distracting thing to to keep being scared and to panic. It's different when it's your home. So um, as an example, you know, if somebody told English people that the French would invade in a week. So maybe if there was an outside view from the West, like, oh, why are Ukrainians not going away? Why are they not prepared? But if you try and think about what would you do if that was if you were in that situation, it's, it's hard to do that when it's, when it's your home. These Ukrainians were not alone. Several European leaders and their intelligence agencies had taken a similar view up until the earliest days of February, dismissing the warnings coming out of London and Washington as alarmist. And indeed, you know, there are certain Western governments, and I'll leave them nameless, which are actually beginning to try and put pressure on Kiev to give concessions to Moscow. You know, if he had been this brilliant geopolitical mastermind, we're sometimes told, Putin would have let that continue. As it was, yes, he invaded, but even then, yeah, I mean, I think, frankly, I think even in that very last week, even at that point, Putin, who for all his macho theatrics, is actually a ditherer, was still considering either not invading or having a much more limited invasion just simply to focus on the Donbass region and the Crimean land corridor, you know, as is happening now. As it was, you know, he went for the maximalist approach. Most of us will have recollections of a moment when they ceased to think that Russia was bluffing and started to believe that a war was a real possibility. For me, the moment was when I saw reporting that Russia was putting up field hospitals next to the Ukrainian border. That seemed too much for a country that was just carrying out an elaborate bluff. As we now know from a phone conversation released between President Zelensky and France's Emmanuel Macron, it was clear that neither man expected the full invasion when it actually happened on the morning of the 24th of February. Neither had the Russian troops taking part, many of them brought in from Siberia, clutching outdated maps and believing they were on an exercise. In fact, they were starting the largest European military action since World War II, and putting the final nail into the coffin of the so-called rules-based international system. Vladimir Putin had just started an epic global conflict between democracy and authoritarianism, one whose outcome remains in doubt. Join us for the next episode, Invasion. Russia launched an attack on neighboring Ukraine early Thursday. Ukraine's military said Russia began shelling Ukrainian forces in the country's east and carried out rocket strikes at airports in multiple cities across Ukraine. Ukraine's border guards also reported artillery attacks coming from Russia and from Belarus. Within hours of the missile attacks, Russian tanks rolled across Ukraine's borders from Russia, Belarus, and from Crimea, the Ukrainian peninsula Moscow annexed in 2014. 
Ukrainian officials said amphibious Russian forces landed near Odessa on the Black Sea. Intense rocket fire could also be heard in the eastern city of Kharkiv. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the operation in a televised address Thursday. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Doomsday Watch is written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced and edited by Robin Lieber. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and our theme tune is by Paul Hartman. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.